Leading the Way with Dr. Michael Youssef, equipping us to grow into a deeper walk with Christ. Part of Night Vision each weeknight. Details at vision.org.au. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective. 2020 on Vision. Is there any such thing as a typical man's life journey in finding meaning? Well, for lots of us, we go down many a dry gully or we take a lot of turns into dead-end streets before we finally come to some sense of meaning and a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. The late evangelist Billy Graham reflected, We are preoccupied with material things. Our supreme God is technology. Our goddess is sex. Most of us are more interested in conquering space than conquering ourselves. We're more dedicated to material security than inner purity. We give much more thought to what we wear, what we eat, what we drink, and what we can do to relax than to give to what we are. Our special guest today is John Bryant, who's told his own story in a new book called Money, Sex and Eternal Life. He says he was driven by a hunger gnawing at his soul. Initially, he was an atheist, and along the way, his quest exposed him to hypnotists, psychotherapists and sensitivity gurus. He experienced the occult, flirted with Eastern religions, survived cults, mystics and false prophets and looked for effortless ways to make a fast buck before a dramatic encounter that finally opened his eyes. I want to welcome to 2020 today, special guest, John Bryant. John, welcome along. Hey, thank you so much for having me on your program, Neil. John, we're talking to you today from the Blue Mountains. You're actually on a hilltop because uh, that's where the best reception is for our phone conversation. So uh, whereabouts are you at the moment? Give us a little description. I'm probably about two hours west of Sydney in the Blue Mountains. And I think probably like Moses, I found that on top of a mountain is a good place to get reception. Of course, uh, Moses got his reception from God, but... um, I'm next best. <laughs> yes. Hey, I thought I was going to be talking to you from the top of your very own medieval tower that you have at your Blue Mountains home. Uh, give us a little insight into this tower that you've got. It's like the ultimate man cave, I hear. Yes, actually, I did one. Uh, uh, actually, I came second in the competition for Australia's best man cave. It's uh, 15 metres tall. It looks like a rocket ship. It's sort of cylindrical with a witch's hat on top. Um, and uh, it's a men-only venue. My wife got pretty irritated when I was building it that I wouldn't let her or her friends come and... uh, lady friends come and look at it, Uh, but it's just a man's space, and the big advantage of the uh, tower is that it doesn't have TV or radio or phones or anything else. It's a place of solitude, of meditation, of prayer, and I allow the guys who want time out to come along and refresh their soul, sitting there looking across 60 uh, kilometres of beautiful World Heritage National Park. Well, we often talk about having a prayer closet. That's the biblical terminology that when you've got a prayer tower in your backyard, I think that's pretty impressive. Look, I think people will resonate with the idea today that we'll primarily be talking about a man's journey, but... 
I suspect women will really resonate with the sorts of things we'll talk about today too because a lot of women are connected to a husband or a boyfriend. Uh, so we'll, uh, we'll wonder, we won't leave women out of the conversation, but we've got a title for your book, Money, Sex and Eternal Life. And you've even discovered that, uh, you know, getting some publicity when you've got sex in the title of your book isn't actually all that easy. No, unfortunately, Facebook banned it, um, purely on that word, sex. I don't know what's so evil about sex. I mean, in the right context, it's fantastic. But, um, yeah, they saw fit. And, I mean, there's so much other putrid stuff on that platform. But yet my book, which um, really is aimed at... Um, you know, encouraging people to take the, particularly men, to take the right attitude towards sex is um, not going to get up. But anyway, that's just the way it is. No doubt we'll be talking about sex as we get the conversation well and truly underway. But uh, give us some insights here into why you decided to tell your story. Why did you decide to write down these things in a book and make them available? So be very public about your own journey, your own mistakes, uh, the dry gullies I was talking about in the introduction. Why write a book like this? Okay, well, there's a few reasons. Um, one major reason was that I wanted to record my spiritual DNA for my children and my descendants. I'd love to have had access to a book uh, written by my great-great-grandfather that described his life and his thoughts and his spirituality. So I decided I'd fill that gap for my descendants. Um, the other thing is I, I've read hundreds and hundreds of Christian books and there's a lot of great stuff out there. But the one thing that most Christian books are about is that they target Christians. And that's great because we all need encouragement. But I didn't think there was too much out there, uh, Christian books for non-Christians. And my book doesn't look like it's a Christian book. The title maybe alludes a little bit to uh, Christianity and the eternal life uh, aspect. But other than that, you, you've got to get a fair way into the book before you realise where it's going. And um, I've had good success with atheists reading the book, getting hooked, and going right to the end. And of course, they get the solid meat of the gospel at the end. So that, that was my objective. Um, the other the other reason I, I wrote it, I guess, was really to um, uh, get across my conclusions after m many years. I prayed about this book a lot. Um, it's been in the pipeline for 30 years. I never felt it was the right time to let it go, uh, get it out there. But uh, late last year, I had a real prompting, I believe, from God to say, look, this is the time, get it going. So that's why I kick-started it. Well, I think people will resonate with the things you've got in your book. And uh, I've dipped into it fairly heavily and uh, discovered that as a Christian book, as you say, written for people who are on the edge, uh, maybe a little bit isolated from church life, uh, you've not been afraid to include the odd expletive in there, uh, just telling it as it is, reflecting on the conversations. And there's a lot of expletives in a lot of conversations that people are having these days. Let's go back to the beginning, and you start your book with the story of your dying friend, Ronnie, and your impressions that there must be something beyond this life. Uh, Ronnie was a staunch atheist right up until he died. Uh, you tell us uh, just your connections here with Ronnie and what started to prick your conscience uh, to uh, shape the way that you began to go from that point forward. Yeah, okay. Ronnie was a really good mate of mine. Uh, we grew up together from the age of about five. 
Uh, we were each other's best man. Uh, we were mates uh, on camping trips and pub crawls and all the usual things that Aussie mates do together. And um, Ronnie went bush to start a contracting business and I stayed in Sydney to do my thing. And um, we sort of kept in touch, but we didn't. Um, every now and again, we saw each other. Unknown to me, Ronnie had had a secret affair. Um, he already had a, a loving wife and children. I knew his wife very well. She was a wonderful lady. Um, but I, I had discovered with great shock that Ronnie had been cheating on her. Um, I was sworn to secrecy. Secrecy. It wasn't my job to um, judge Ronnie or to blow the whistle, so I didn't say any more about that. But I got a, a very urgent message from his wife one night that he was in Glenninus Hospital dying. Um, I jumped in my ute. I did an eight-hour drive to get to Glenninus Hospital. I arrived there just in time. Ronnie was on his last, literally on his last hours. Um, they said he was unconscious, but I went into his room. I had no spiritual background at this stage. I was basically an atheist, but I had an open mind. And I got in to see Ronnie. I had the last probably five minutes of discussion that he ever had in his life. And his dying words to me, he confessed all his sins, which was really interesting. He felt so bad about his illicit affair, um, confessed the things that he'd done wrong in his life. I mean, I wish I'd been a Christian at that stage. It would have been the perfect opening. But anyway, he told me all this stuff, and then basically the last sentence he said to me was, um, I really wish there was somebody up there. And I had an open mind on that question, and I walked out of that hospital, um, drove home. Ronnie died on the way home. I got a call from his wife, but it was those last dying words I wish there was somebody up there that just stuck in my head and I couldn't get rid of them for years and years. And that really prompted me on my spiritual search. Well, I wish there was somebody up there. And the journey that goes from that point on uh, through all of those experiences that I mentioned in the introduction, and we might get to a few of those, but as you grew older, uh, those sorts of dry gullies, those sorts of dead-end roads, they became more frequent for you, and you went up an awful lot of them. Uh, some people don't have such a, a hard journey as you did, but uh, let me just, just before we move on to those, because you did have some brush with Christianity in your childhood experience, but it wasn't a positive experience. And uh, I noted that, uh, you know, you were you were at a youth group meeting one night and decided uh, you could, uh, you know, get into the church and uh, run amok a little bit. But can you take us back to your poor and really disturbing experience in church life as a child? Yeah, it wasn't a good start. I think I was about 14 at the time, and I'd been invited to a youth group by a friend, and I went along, and it was the usual thing that 14-year-old kids do. We run around in the dark outside the, in the church grounds, um, and somebody discovered that the side door to the church was open, so we snuck into the church. It was pitch black. We couldn't see a thing, but, you know, as little kids do, we're shrieking and shouting and scaring each other and carrying on, and all of a sudden, this deep, booming voice came out of the darkness, and, um, I mean, I was aware that I was in a so-called house of God, didn't believe God existed. Um, and this voice sort of castigated us for running amok inside God's house. And uh, it made the point very clear that we were very naughty boys, that God could see each one of us. He didn't like what he saw. <laughs> 
and it was a, a big negative. I actually wet my pants with fear. <laughs> it, was that, it was that dramatic. And um, anyway, that voice, uh, we heard the door open and close again. It was obviously some man from the church uh, who'd done that to scare the daylights out of us, and it certainly did. And I left that event again with that other voice in my head, just like Ronnie's question, that was, um, I'm a very bad boy. God doesn't like what he sees. Um, so I just shut God out. That was the end of it for me. I don't want to follow or look, look for God who thinks I'm a bad boy. <laughs> well, doesn't it make sense to say that sometimes we've got to revisit those experiences that we've had in church life as children and sometimes where it's, got, you know, one of the elders trying to defend the church property from uh, from what he might have thought were people trying to vandalise the sanctuary or something like that and yet you've got this whole impression that you get when you hear someone speaking harshly and uh, you've yes. got to revisit those times and try to make sense of them and I'm sure that makes sense to you now but for years, no doubt, as a bad experience that sort of haunted you along the way. This is 2020 with Neil Johnson. Helping you make sense of life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. 1-800-316-316 to join in our conversation today. Uh, comment on some of the things we are talking about. Uh, talk about whether it resonates with you uh, that these sorts of things are a part of a typical man's journey to find some substance in life, some meaning. Our guest today is John Bryant. He's told his own story in a new book called Money, Sex and Eternal Life. I mentioned, John, that, you know, you'd been up a lot of dry gullies. Uh, let's talk about some of these experiences here because in your early years you even tried having a guru. And <laughs> let me just say his name is Lobsang Rampa. Now, I've never heard of him, but uh, clearly he was popular around the time when you decided to adopt some guru culture. Yeah, he was. Um, after the Ronnie experience, I had this, it developed into almost an insane thirst to find out what life was all about. So I started searching and I thought the best way to find out initially was to find a guru who could tell me. And um, I picked up a book once on this guy called, he, he was an author and a guru called Lobsang Rampa. And he published book after book after book and I like a, a turkey kept buying them thinking that I was delving into truth and um, he was a mystical character supposedly lived in Tibet in Lhasa even Lhasa that, 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 that mystical city in the top of the Himalayas had this magical guru type ring to it um, so I got sucked deeper and deeper into Lobsang's um, cavernous philosophies um, I can remember I used to try and leave my body and go traveling in the astral plane. Anyone who sort of delved in this area will know what I'm talking about, but basically I'd lie in bed at night uh, trying to get out of my body. I, we probably, a lot of people have that experience when you're falling asleep, you suddenly feel like you're falling. Um, and Lobsang said that was sure evidence that you were just about ready to leave your body and travel the universe attached to a silver cord. <laughs> and I'd lie in bed grunting, and my wife said, what's wrong with you? I go, shush, I'm just about out. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, I won't go on about log saying too long. Um, I found he was a fake. I found that what didn't even exist, he was actually a, a, a British author who constructed the whole thing as a way of selling books. Oh, wow. uh, yeah, big, 
<laughs> big letdown. So from a guru, uh, you go to the idea of attending a friend's place where they're having a seance. Uh, there's a yeah. certain spirituality. You recognise that there's a spiritual realm. You're trying to somehow or other tap into it. Uh, what mm. a- what happened at the seance? Well, you know, now that I'm, I know the, the Christian, um, I'm a Christian and I understand the Bible and I realise that there are principalities and powers uh, that are evil, um, I now recognise that seance for what it was, which was simply uh, communication with evil, with, with demons, with the satanic forces. But um, I was unaware of any of that at the time. I went to this seance. Uh, we sat around. There was um, four of us sitting around a table. and uh, It was just a big, entertaining joke. Uh, there, it wasn't any deep spirituality as such. But um, we sat there with the letters of the alphabet cut out and, and placed in a large circle around the table. We each put our fingers on the top of a drinking glass, and the glass, without being pushed by any of us, moved around the letters, spelling out answers to our questions. Um, and it was highly entertaining. And, you know, in my spiritual state at the time, I thought, man, I think I've found it. This could be it. But the questions that I asked and the answers I got just didn't make sense to me. They didn't ring true. They were entertaining, but um, I lost interest in it reasonably quickly. So it was just another one of those dry gullies that you mentioned. So getting involved then in the occult, and you've had experience with hypnosis, uh, mind expansion. Take us into Mm -hmm. a few of those thoughts. Well, the hypnotherapy, I, I used to see an advertisement in the local rag about this hypnotherapist who could solve all your problems, and he had a, his first visit was free, so I signed up. I went and made an appointment. I went in there, and the guy gave me an hour of ink blot tests, which meant nothing to me, and at the end of it he said, oh, you better make an appointment and come back next week, and I'll explain what the ink blot test meant. Well, I had to, I had to go back to get the test results, so I thought, okay... Um, I went back, paid my money, and he said, look, he, he actually, he spoke for about half an hour in medical jargon, and I couldn't understand anything he said, but at the end of it, he said one sentence that really, again, like Ronnie's question, struck another chord in my mind and heart, and that was, he said, you've only got one problem, you don't know who you are. <laughs> yeah. I walked out of there, and I thought, that guy's nuts. You know, I don't know who I am. Of course I know who I am. But then I started to think about it, and I thought, who am I? And I honestly didn't know. I knew my name, I knew where I lived, I knew what I did for a living, but as to who I actually was, I didn't have an answer. So it just added a weight to the the searching. It just gave me another... The hypnotherapist, instead of solving my problems, just added to them. So um, he sent me off into the wilderness even further. Um, there was another organization called the Rosicrucians and um, they teach that you only use 10% of your mind and that they can help you develop the other 90%. And I thought, wow, that sounds pretty good. Maybe the meaning of life lies in a greater level of intelligence. So I signed up for the Rosicrucians course. Every month a plain brown wrapper came in the mail with my lessons and exercises for the month. And um, I tell you what, I've got a good wife. She put up with all of this, and she never really objected. But um, with the Rosicrucians course, I used to have to sit in our bedroom, the lights off night time, 
sitting in front of the her dressing table with a candle on each side, staring at my own candle-lit face in the mirror, chanting mantras. <laughs> and she would bang on the door and say, what are you doing in there? And I'd say, be quiet, go away, I'm developing my mind. <laughs> okay. If it wasn't so serious, it would be funny, and we're having a laugh about it now because it sounds ridiculous, speaking on this side of the equation where we have discovered that there is real substance in Christ. But when we talk about these dead ends and these dry gullies, I mean... There's an awful lot of uh, there's an awful lot of things that you know you can look back on, and and I think people can hear you're writing about them with a little bit of a sense of humour as well, because you're exposing some of the ridiculousness in some of these things, John. Oh, that's true, and I mean it is it, now I find it hilarious, but at the time it was an enormous letdown because each time I felt that I had arrived at the truth, and then to find that it wasn't the truth, it was in fact the opposite was a huge disappointment and created great hurt within my own soul and heart and there was this big burden of guilt that I was carrying which I wasn't too sure exactly where it came from but I felt guilty I felt condemned my life was a misery Um, so yeah it wasn't all fun and games that's for sure I mean the alternatives to Jesus um, are not real not real good when you're going through them (laughs) you know there's all these alternative things you can search out in a spiritual sense but it wasn't just a spiritual sense you were pushing the boundaries on you thought well maybe I can do something here uh, make a lot of money you borrowed a lot of money in fact to invest in the stock market uh, but that was, yeah. you know, in some people's mind, you probably made a good decision here. Well, yeah, before, just before that, I'd work, I mean, I trace also my work history, my business history in the book, and before that I'd worked for a guy who was mega successful, but he was completely corrupt. And um, he uh, had extramarital affairs, he had a lot of money, and um, at that stage I thought, well, maybe the answer to, to life is simply to be happy by having a lot of money. So I went down the money track, and as you just mentioned, um, there was a period in Australia where the stock market went through one of its regular boom cycles, and um, I had a friend who worked in a stockbroker's office, and he was able to get me some shares uh, before they listed on the stock exchange, and I borrowed the equivalent of about a year's salary to invest in this uh, scheme, and I I was pretty sure it was going to come off because the the stock market was just going berserk. Everything that listed went shooting through the roof. Um, Anyway, I I invested a year's salary that I'd borrowed um, on this particular stock, and sure enough, it listed on the exchange on a particular day. Um, uh, Over the next couple of weeks, the stock tripled in value. So it got to the point I wasn't sleeping at night. I was so excited, so concerned about maybe losing the money because stocks can go down, um, I just couldn't handle the stress. So I sold the shares, and I ended up with three three years' worth of salary. So I had this big pot of gold, and this is what I thought would bring me happiness. But the opposite, I found that the buzz wore off pretty quickly, a couple of weeks, and I got used to having this money. Um, and then I found it. I was awake at night for a different reason. I was worrying about where to invest it, uh, how I might lose it, about inflation that was eroding it. Um, so the myth that money brings happiness was something that uh, I really proved in my own experience was just that, a myth. 
Okay, and you mentioned too working for a boss who was, in your experience there, corrupt. A lot of corrupt things happening in business. Lots of people working for bosses in a corrupt environment, and they'll resonate with some of those thoughts too. Uh, you must have had some idea of what was right to be able to recognise that corruption and and realise that you were perhaps in the in the wrong place. Yeah, I, I did. I had. I was very fortunate to have really good, loving parents who had very solid Christian values, and I, I was pretty um, black and white, uh, right and wrong. You know, I, di- I didn't have any trouble deciding what was right or wrong. I just had trouble choosing right <laughs> some of the time. So yeah, I could recognise, you know, what I should be doing, even if I didn't do it. Um, and I think most people are like that. We've all got that knowledge of good and evil. We all know our conscience tells us that something is good or bad and right or wrong. Uh, John Bryant, who's sitting on top of a hill in the Blue Mountains where he's got great reception to be able to talk to us today. Uh, John, your book's title is called Money, Sex and Eternal Life. Uh, some people will be saying uh, we haven't talked much about sex yet, so let's turn our attention to sex. Uh, why did you have to bring sex into the book? Is that just a matter of uh, just drawing attention to uh, you know something a little bit uh, you know uh, uh, what would you call it? You know, just uh, drawing commercially valuable. <laughs> yes, I know that hasn't worked so far with your promotion of it, but uh, you know, let's talk about sex. Bringing sex into this equation and a man's journey. Okay, well, it, the reason that I brought sex into it is because there are, two, there are two big things in life that ruin men. One is money and the other is, is sex. And um, I'm over 70 years of age now and I've seen it all. And I've, I know so many men, good men, who have had the right intention, um, heading in the right direction, but at some stage they hit that roadblock called sex and at the time of temptation, uh, they're just not up to the, uh, the, the um, being able to operate, you know, in a way that brings them through it. And interestingly, since this book's come out, I've had a number of Christian men um, who have come up to me and said, I'm so glad to have read about your battles with lust and your battles with temptation. And the, the circumstances that I describe in my book are actually real-life circumstances where I've been standing face-to-face, uh, really at a crossroads, where if I'd chosen the world's uh, route, I, I, my marriage would have been gone. My kids would probably wouldn't talk to me anymore. But because I had God's Word embedded in my heart and spirit, I was able to make choices that took me down the right path in that area. So I don't claim any personal um, glory. I, I really give the glory to God that living His ways in this area in your life brings so much fruit. And I mean, I'm about to celebrate my 55th wedding anniversary in a month's time, and I can say for dead sure, without the Word of God in my life over the past number of decades, I would not be celebrating that anniversary. I'd be a lonely old man living on the memories of a few illicit affairs. Well, there's a saying that says a man's sex drive is connected to his optic nerve, the things we're looking at. And 
there's a preoccupation with sex in a man's life and in a man's journey. And oftentimes, as you say, there are those things that pull a man down, the uh, the money and the sex. So uh-huh. this preoccupation with sex, though, you've, you've somehow rather got to grapple with that and come to a, dif- a deeper understanding about how that fits with God uh, so you can make sense of sex in a man's life and so that it doesn't become an obstacle to be able to finding that real meaning in meeting with him. Uh, what are your mm. thoughts on, on, on how you might manage that journey? Well, I mean, for me, I've, I've, been, I've got a fairly good degree of self-discipline. And when I came to understand uh, the issues with regard to both sex and money, first of all, as I mentioned before, I had uh, indulged heavily every day in the Word of God. So I had, I had God's direction and guidance. But more than that, um, I also made a decision that I would not allow my eyes to wander. And I know that's almost impossible in daily life. You walk into the supermarket and there's um, scantily clad people everywhere. Um, it, it, you can't avoid it, but you can, you can avoid the second look. And I think it was Billy Graham who said that um, you can't stop the birds flying over your head, but you can stop them nesting in your hair. And that was my philosophy. I'm, I'm not going to dwell. Um, I make an absolute rule in my own life not to ever look at pornography, not even... I mean, sometimes you get trapped, you might be Googling a particular topic which is quite innocent and it has a double meaning and and some porn site will come up. It's always tempting. I'll just have a quick look to see how bad porn is. (laughs) We can justify it. It's so easy. But, um, yeah, in in my case, um, I just made a decision not to go there. And I must say to men that have already gone there, and and there'd be many men listening to this who are addicted to porn. Addiction to porn is a huge issue in the church as well as outside it. It's never too late. With God's help, you can can get past it. You can overcome it and certainly be forgiven of it. So that's why my my sex topic was in the book. And I've had, um, you know, as I said, feedback from guys who really appreciate knowing that there's other people who suffer the same issues. You're not alone. Yes, people glad that someone wants to talk about men and sex and to understand uh, you've got that story to tell and reflecting on that in your book, which talks about all of the other uh, journeys that you've been on, all of the other things that you have tried. Uh, That needs to be in the mix, absolutely. John, I don't want to miss the really important part of your story. And having gone down all these dead-end streets and reflecting on your friend Ronnie saying, you know, I hope there's someone up there, uh, this idea that, you know, who are you? Your identity is in question here. Uh, we often will like to reflect on that part of a person's story when we hear about how they found Christ. Uh, take us to a time when you had that encounter with God that brought some of these things into focus and you finally understood that there was something substantial in your quest for meaning when you found Christ. Yep. Well, you know, as I've talked a lot about all the things, all the dead ends, and I had got probably to almost the end of the possible dead ends. I've tried everything. Um, and I got to a point where my, my wife actually was a Christian when we got married, and she tried hard to interest me and all the rest of it. But because of my negative childhood, I'd always rejected her uh, efforts. So I encourage women who are in that position, don't give up on your man. But um, anyway, my wife 
uh, at one stage we had three children and she used to take them uh, during or uh, school holidays to a vacation Bible school run by a local church. And she'd take them and drop them off. And then one of the men would drop the kids home again. And a guy called Al uh, dropped the kids off. And over maybe the course of a week, him dropping in each afternoon, um, he started chatting to me about different issues. And we found we had a common interest in the meaning of life. So he then started to give me the biblical perspective on what life was all about. And I thought the guy was a twit. I really did. I thought, this guy knows nothing. So I was debating with him, and uh, at one stage he said to me, look, I'm not going to talk to you about um, the meaning of life from a biblical perspective. I'm ever again until you've read the Bible. He said, have you ever read it? I said, no, I've read everything else, but I've never read the Bible. So I said, well, you know, I'll be your friend. I'll talk about anything else, but until you've read it, you know, we'll forget about that topic. And that really got to me. I thought, I'm going to show this guy where he's wrong. (laughs) So I got a good news from Modern Man, and I read it right through, cover to cover. It took me about six months, and I got to the end of it, and I, I, I tried all this other stuff. And the Bible had a ring of truth that was unlike anything else I'd read. And I was sort of coming to the conclusion that the Bible had to be 100% true or 100% false. It couldn't be just a mishmash of truth and untruth. So I was in that state of mind when... My wife, at the end of this vacation Bible school, she said, oh, the kids want to go to a tent meeting, a tent meeting at the church. Um, And I wasn't keen. I didn't want to go. But anyway, I got talked into it. Um, And so my wife and my three children and I, we ended up sitting in this uh, old-fashioned tent in the northwestern suburbs of Sydney out on a rural block of land. It was a stinking hot summer's night. I'm sitting in there, bored to tears, and the, there's this old, uh, 80-year-old American guy who's doing a bit of a, a, a puppet-type show for the children, which is telling gospel stories. I'm not even listening to the guy. And all of a sudden, I have this incredible, I don't know, I, I call it an illness feeling within me. I'm a very healthy person. I never felt crook. And it was so bad, I got up from my seat and I staggered out of the tent into the dark and I stood there and I felt this enormous angst this terrible foreboding, this, this hopelessness. And I suddenly realized that this was God. Um, I never expected this. I expected my journey to end at some mind-tickling nirvana, something that would satisfy my intellect. But here I am confronted with a person. And I just couldn't hack that. It, was, it staggered me. And at the same time, I've got this physical illness, my chest, felt like I had a ton of concrete on it. My, I could hear my blood pounding in my ears, and I knew that I had to say yes or no to this presence. And I thought about it for fleetingly, and I thought, no, I'm not going to, I'm not going to succumb to whatever this is. So I said no, and instantly the pressures all took, went away. I felt normal again. I went back inside the tent. I was as miserable as you can be because as I sat there thinking about it, I thought, here I am. I've been searching for the meaning of life for, I don't know how many decades at that stage. I've tried all the alternatives. I suddenly come upon what appears to be the answer, and I reject it. I mean, am I mad? Anyway, I went home. The next couple of days, I was beyond miserable, and then Al called in again on a Saturday morning for coffee, and he knew nothing about all this. 
and um, he started. He was a good, good evangelist. He just started in right. At, God had probably told him exactly how to do it. Anyway, he started questioning me about the Bible that I'd been reading. What did I think about Jesus? And all the feelings from that negative night came back. And he just said, "Look, you know, are you going to accept Jesus? Are you going to follow Jesus, or are you going to keep mucking about?" And I just thought. I'm going to follow him. So I said yes. And that was an absolute turning point. The, the guilt, the negativity was lifted. I'd like to say that it was like the Blues Brothers, you know, where the shaft of light came out of heaven and uh, I did backflips down the aisle, but didn't do that. But it, it just was a total turning point in my life. And from there, didn't mean there were no more battles. But it certainly meant that I'd found the direction that I'd been looking for all those years. And this idea that you're supposed to feel good uh, to make that decision to follow Christ, uh, you turn that on its head and you describe really, really strongly that physical illness that you felt when the conviction of God was coming on you in that point. And, and I wonder whether you have any reflection of what happens when something of the weight is lifted off your shoulders when you finally do surrender to Christ. Is, is that the way it, it happened for you? Yes, it is. Um, as I said, it, it didn't solve all the issues in my life. There was, there was Really, it was the start of a new journey, but the new journey had direction. Um, and I had a, a friend. I mean, that night, the negativity was, in my view, was the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And while it was totally unpleasant, it was I needed that in my circumstances in order to make the decision I made. Um, I Right now, looking back on that, I welcome that. I thank you, Holy Spirit, for that experience. Um, he, he just he knew the sledgehammer he had to use penetrate my thick head and heart so yeah that was my turning point um the, the fact that, that i then start i was encouraged by a group of men after that experience i started going to church which was the last thing on earth i ever thought i'd do but al said look if you really want to progress in your christian life you've got to associate with other believers so i started going to church and the best thing that happened there was a group of men and most of them tradesmen actually um, were very strong in daily reading of the Word of God. And they got me into that habit probably within a couple of months. They followed me up relentlessly, and to this day I read the Word of God every day, and that more than anything else has been what changed my life. I think if I hadn't read the Word of God and just tried to uh, live my Christian life on the basis of that foundational experience, I probably would have fallen away. But constant exposure to God's Word and encouragement from other believers is just absolutely vital. And having heard all the stories that you've touched on in our conversation today, I imagine that right from the very start there, you've been able to contribute to conversations in your church life with your neighbours, with your community, with people who have had these sorts of discussions and been able to reflect on the idea of having a guru or going through cults and uh, testing the occult and all sorts of things like that. They actually add a real richness to our story when we can recount those things and put them in context to what we understand now. 
Uh, take us just very quickly because we don't have a whole lot of time. I mean, this is some time ago. You made the decision to follow Christ. That weight was lifted. The burden was gone, as we sometimes talk about. But in those years now, you clearly have been able to articulate these things to a point where you've been able to record them in your book. But uh, you've been able to have these sorts of conversations uh, all over all these decades now. Yes, that's true. Um in the early part of my Christian life, I used to go into the domain, the big park in Sydney, where you can exercise free speech. And I used to uh, go in there and interject with atheists and, and argue the toss. And it was n- not all that hard to argue because um, I had such a rich background of all the wrong things, so I knew where they were coming from. Um, but more lately, um, when the internet got going, uh, I've, I've had incredible uh, discourses with all sorts of believers, non-believers, atheists, uh, agnostics. Um, in fact, I belong to Australia's biggest uh, motorcycle uh, social club called the Ulysses, and I started a forum on the Ulysses Club. They have 20,000 members, and we debated the meaning of life for te- uh, five years, and the debate got so voluminous that they had to keep cleaning the, um, the record of the forum off the server because it couldn't hold it all. And people are vitally interested in the meaning of life. I mean, I come across them all the time, but we often, as Christians, we we don't mark it well. We we might go into a conversation talking about Jesus, and nothing wrong with that, and that's right for some people, and that's what the Spirit's leading you to do, do it. But you've also got to be subtle. Um, I've gone in, I usually go in with the, the meaning of life angle, and I ask people, you know, frankly, have you discovered the meaning of life? And uh, it's amazing the answers you get, and the majority of people that I talk to have not discovered the meaning of life. And I guess that I'm exercised to bring that topic up because that's where I came from. Other people may come from a different direction totally, but that's just my journey. And John, people listening to our conversation today will recognise that you're able to articulate those things and tell those stories so beautifully and with wonderful clarity. And you've come across people in church life since that time who, uh, in some sense, are wearing a mask, uh, hypocrisy in some people. Uh, You've had difficulty over the times in the years of growing to be a mature Christian, uh, going through all of those issues, discovering that some people in church life uh, are more into hypocrisy and putting on a great face than actually being authentic. Uh, You've certainly led the way here in being able to articulate all of these things so beautifully about your own life. What are your thoughts for people who are thinking, I've got lots of stories just like John, but somehow or other I'm afraid to tell those. Uh, what are your thoughts for those listening? That's a really good question because that is a question that I had in my mind as I completed writing this book. In my book, there's a, um, an email address, which is comingreadyornot.com. Um, and I mean, I encourage people that have got a story to tell to contact me because I want to do another book which is not about my life. I've already done that. I want to do a book um, that is about the lives of 20, 30, 40 other people who have had different Christian experiences, who, to the glory of God, can tell us a story, only need to be brief. They don't have to be writers. I can help edit. Um, I'd love to... we, We need to expose more of these positives to one another. Um, Too often, you know, we're... We hear the term frozen chosen. 
you know, we sit in the back row of a church on a pew. We've got a life experience just busting out of us, but we can't do anything with it. And I think it's a tragedy to the glory of God. I mean, every one of us is a unique, um, exciting individual, and, and we need to let other people know. And everybody may not be an evangelist, and I'm not. I can't go up to people in the street and suddenly beat them over the head with the, the, the gospel. That's not my style. But we can all tell our story. So I would say, you know, if you've got a story to tell, make contact with me and let's get it down. I've done books like this in the past. This is the first book I've done on spiritual issues, but I've done a number of other books that have been bestsellers, which are composite stories from a lot of different people. I'd love to do that. And uh, I might add those other books you've written about Aussie driving utes, uh, real Aussies drive utes and uh, great Australian ute stories. So there's something very Australian about that, the great Australian motorcycle stories. So if you want to get people's stories and get them published, get them in print, no doubt there'll Mm. be people saying, I wonder whether John would be interested in hearing my story. And uh, I'll encourage you to get in touch with John. You just never know what might happen. Uh, We might be hearing lots of stories in your next book I want to point people to how they can get a hold of your book Money, Sex and Eternal Life Uh, simply go to John's website that's the easiest way to get a hold of it so wherever you're listening right around Australia uh, getting onto John's website johnbryant.com.au johnbryant b-r-y-a-n-t dot com dot au it's called Money, Sex and Eternal Life he's written it for people who feel a little bit isolated people who are a little bit detached from church life people who are not believers it is a book that people will be able to resonate with as the stories are read John Bryant great getting your insights I want to thank you so much for taking some time to share your thoughts and your heart with us so openly today on 2020 Neil thank you so much for having me on I I really appreciate it and I just pray that many people out there listening to you uh, and to me during this interview uh, would just take courage uh, take solace from the fact that no matter where you're at God loves you He's got a way ahead for you, and if we can help in any way, and I know your station does that. Thank you. Well, John, no doubt we'll talk again on another day. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.